Jesus' name. Now can you pray and say, Lord, change my life. Amen. Well, turn your neighbors, say it was worth waiting for. All right, here we go. Philippians, the epistle of joy. I love the word of God. I love teaching it. I love reading it. I cannot get enough of the word fast enough. Sometimes I wish that I could plug something in and just shoot the word in without having to read it because I hunger for it. Now, last time we saw that a key to Paul's joy was his total confidence in the sovereignty of God. See, I believe God's in control. He knew that God was in control, so he did not freak out. He did not chew his nails. He didn't lose sleep when things got rough. He believed that God was providential and in charge. Now, because of that, he could rejoice in jail, viewing his chains as a challenge rather than a problem. I don't know if I'm there yet. If I'm in jail, I'm thinking I've got a problem. But he saw it as a challenge. Now, his joy and boldness also resulted in many of the brothers in the Lord, brothers and sisters, waxing confident, he says, in my bonds, in my chains. They are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Now, let me tell you something about fear. It's contagious. Just ask that first generation of Israelites as they stood at the, at the Jordan, and because of 10 negative men, the entire nation was locked in fear and missed their blessing and died looking at what they would never have. Fear is contagious. But the flip side of the coin is boldness is contagious. Courage is contagious. And because of Paul's courage and boldness, even as he was chained up, his attitude and the way he looked at it gave boldness and courage to many of the brethren who started preaching with boldness. And Paul was also aware of something that would bother many of us, but he did not let it bother him. Now, you know what I call Paul? He is the king of a positive attitude. Not in the Zig Ziglar sense, and I love Zig. I'm not saying anything against Zig by saying that, but not in the positive attitude genre that we've come to know in secular society, but he was the king of a positive attitude based in his belief that God was in charge and was going to make everything work together for his good. You could not knock him out of the race. As long as he was breathing, he was preaching, praying, writing, fighting the good fight. So he became aware of something that probably would have bothered a lot of us, but it didn't bother him because of his incredible attitude. He says in verse 15, some people out there are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. Now look at the motives for preaching that were there in his day, and know this church, they're here today. Same motives. You had some people preaching out of envy, some people preaching out of strife, and then some were preaching out of goodwill. Take that little phrase, goodwill. It's the same word used by the angels in announcing the Savior's birth. They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, what goodwill toward men. 
Well, to preach the gospel out of goodwill is to preach it out of a sincere desire for the well-being of others. I don't preach out of, as far as I know, I don't preach out of strife or envy or anything. I preach because I want to see you blessed. And I preach because God laid his hand on me to do it. Woe unto me if I don't do it. I mean, woe unto me. I read about Jonah today. I did. And where he went, I never want to go. God still has his whales. Sometimes they have bars. Sometimes they have invisible bars. But if you run from the call and the purpose of God, woe unto you. Now, Paul preached out of goodwill, but unfortunately not all preachers were or are motivated out of such desires. Some were preaching Christ out of envy. They were, say the word with me, jealous of Paul. I've come to believe jealousy is the meanest emotion there is. There's nothing that'll cut you up more than somebody jealous of you. It's the green-eyed monster with big teeth. Okay? They were jealous of Paul. They were envious of his success and resentful of his influence in the churches. And so they preached out of envy. They preached out of envy towards Paul. And some were preaching out of strife. The word for strife means factious rivalry. Competition had entered the hearts of the individuals with wrong motives. They were competing. They said, well, now he's in jail. He stopped for a while, so I can catch up to him. They were competing against him. They weren't filled with the fire of the Holy Spirit to preach the word of God so people would be blessed. They were filled with envy, and they were filled with jealousy, and they were filled with factious rivalry. Isn't it sad how quick we are to run down somebody else's work? Especially if it seems to be a little bit bigger or better than our own. Come on. Or she's prettier, or he's more handsome. Or she's got a nicer car, or he's got a bigger house. Or she has a better job, or he just always seems to have the Midas touch. And we look at somebody like that and we say, God bless you, brother. But you don't mean it. There's not a thing in you that wants to bless them. If you could tell the truth, it's eating you alive that they're blessed and you don't seem to be as blessed. You know how I've learned to get around that? There have been times in my life I looked at somebody's ministry and I envied it. I did. And I could feel that twinge of jealousy. Why them and not me? I'm just being honest with you. If I told you anything else, I'd be lying to you. And all of you have done the same thing on some level or another. So here's what I learned. I learned to think this way. Thank God they're as successful as they are. Because we desperately need large, successful, booming, Christ-preaching, blood-preaching, cross-preaching churches. May their tribe increase. And don't let one word of envy out of your mouth. Don't let one word of jealousy come out of your mouth. Don't footnote what you say about them with that subtle little stabbing criticism. Don't let it out. Just say, oh, praise God for their success. Let me tell you, I thank God for Gateway. I thank God for Fellowship Church. I thank God for churches all over the city that are far larger and more influential than ours. We're going to get there. 
but I don't say that competitively. I say that I'm watching them and saying, here I come. You've been an example for me, but I'm so thankful for them. And I pray for their success because you take them away and salt and light have been removed and we need them. Somebody's prettier than you, more handsome than you. You think that way anyway? Just say, thank God. Thank God. Because God has taken care of me. And let me tell you something. You look at somebody that seems better off than you, you don't know what's going on behind closed doors. Some people are real good at putting up a great front, and they come walking in, and it's like, is there anything they don't have? But you don't know what goes on behind closed doors. You don't know what battles they're fighting. You don't know what they're experiencing. You don't know what their weaknesses are, their failures. They may be dying on the inside, and you don't know it. So instead, you just pray for them. You say, they have what they have. I have what I have. And as we like to say, God don't make no junk. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. There's nothing to be jealous of. You been to a high school reunion lately? You remember Mr., what were they call them in high school? Mr. Uh, success, popular, you know, good looking, whatever they were, and Mrs. and, and Mr., and there was the, the most popular man, the most popular woman, and, and they were beautiful and handsome and successful. And then you go to the high school reunion, and you're looking for them. And you go up to somebody and say, excuse me, have you seen so-and-so? And they say, that's me. And you want to say, what happened to you? And they say, life. There's nothing to be jealous of. There's nothing to be envious of. So you know what Paul did? Look at this. He says in verse 16, the former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely. They, they are thinking they're going to add affliction to my chains by getting out there and succeeding while I'm locked up. But the latter are preaching out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel, and these chains are the will of God for me right now. Now get this, everybody. Those who were preaching from an insincere motive were hoping to add affliction to Paul's bonds. They wanted to make his pain increase. <laughs> and they were believers. Hello. But they were carnal believers. They were immature believers. The word affliction, hoping to add affliction to my bonds, alludes to the painful friction of a prisoner's chains against his ankles and wrists. In other words, these preachers were hoping that their success would irritate Paul like chains rubbing your skin. But Paul, the king of an overcoming attitude, had a liberating response. I so love Paul. I'm telling you, you had to kill him to stop him. And even that didn't stop him because we're reading his letters tonight. But look at this. Here was his response. What then? I've got a choice. I can be eat up with this or I can choose this response. And here it is. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and will rejoice. He was saying, whatever your motive is, if Christ is being preached, you go, brother. You go, sister, and you're not going to get me irritated because you're out there and I'm in here and you're winning souls and I'm kind of locked up right now. I rejoice if anybody is saved. And as soon as he took that attitude, 
He was emotionally set free. This is the second time Paul uses the word rejoice. That's twice so far in chapter 1. I will rejoice if Christ is preached. Paul uses the word rejoice. Again, he could not applaud their motives, but he could and did rejoice that the gospel was going forth. Paul's joy, everybody, was unstoppable and irrepressible. When souls were saved, he could only say, say it with me, hallelujah. So he saved himself emotionally from being taken out by the devil. If the devil can get a thorn in your emotional side, he'll use jealousy, he'll use envy, he'll use bitterness, he'll use unforgiveness, he'll use anger, he'll use doubt, he'll use any one of a number of things to set that thorn in your emotions where you lose your joy. And the joy of the Lord is your strength. Paul said, not me. If you're out there preaching to try to bug me, I'm just going to rejoice that you're preaching because you're preaching my gospel, whatever your motive is. And the thorn never was able to lodge itself in his mind. He kept his joy. He kept his joy. Folks, we've got to keep our joy. Now, let me ask you, how many of you have your joy? And doesn't the enemy try to take it away? Doesn't he try to steal it? Isn't he a joy thief? Yes, he's a joy thief. Because he knows if he can take your joy, he can take your strength. If he can take your strength, he can take your fruitfulness. Now next we see not just this incredible attitude, but abounding optimism. Verse 19, he says, I know that this is going to turn out for my deliverance. Through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Boy, drink those words in. Look at that. Paul desired that his stand for Christ might be vindicated. He's on his way to see Nero. He's going to be brought before the emperor. A wicked, evil, demonic man. And he said, when I stand in front of him, I want to be vindicated and I want to be delivered. And I do not want to bring disgrace on the gospel. He did not want to, want to let the church or Jesus Christ down by compromising or misrepresenting the gospel in any way when he went to court. He was headed to court, major court, supreme court. It was very, very serious. And yet he said, I'm not going to lose my joy and I'm not going to misrepresent Jesus and I'm not going to water him down and I'm not going to back down. Look carefully what the mighty apostle was relying on. Your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I, I drink those words in. Your prayer. And he's talking to the Philippian church now. And he's saying, I won you to Christ. I've, I planted that church in the fires of persecution. But I need your prayer. I need your prayers, children of God. I really need your prayer. The great apostle was never too great to ask for the prayers of God's people. People who ever say, I don't need your prayers. Let me pray for you. They are crazy because we all need to pray for one another, don't we? If, if you ever feel led to pray for me, do it. And you know what? When you don't feel led, do it. I need your prayers. I hope you cover your pastor in prayer. 
Because we're targets, big ones. Right, Corey? There's another pastor over here, Corey. We're targets. My favorite car to send to preachers, it's a deer. I've told you about this. It's from the far side. It's two deer standing in the woods. And one of them has a big bullseye on his chest. And the other deer looks at him and says, bummer of a birthmark, Hal. Bummer of a birthmark, Hal. I send that to preachers and say, you've got a birthmark just like that. You've got a target on you. We need prayer. The great apostle needed prayer. And look what he said. And I'm drawing from the supply of the spirit of Jesus Christ. I'm pulling on those waters of salvation. I'm drinking at the well. I don't know how people make it in this world without the Holy Spirit. And just think what it will be like when the church is gone. You see the battle now? Jesus said, if they've done these things in the green tree, what will they do when it's dry? They're doing the things they're doing now when there's a church here and the Holy Ghost is moving all over the earth. What are they going to do when the church is taken out? I, I, I'm not going to be here. And in the meantime, I'm going to be drawing on the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I drink all the time of the Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit would see him through it all. And Paul knew it. God would give him the right words to say. Paul's optimism was based on the solid realities of prayer and the Holy Spirit. This is why I tell you, and I'm not going to linger long here, but you don't need alcohol. Learn to draw on the Spirit of God. Do. Seriously. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not throwing judgment on you. I'm just, I care about you and I love you and there's nothing at the bottom of that bottle but trouble. Bad decisions. Every sip you take, you increase your chances of making a bad decision. But you get into the Word and draw on the waters of the Holy Spirit and every drink you take, you increase your chances of making a good decision. Isn't that right? That's right. That's free. Verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I, in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. What a man filled with God. The word magnified means to make great or to enlarge. Paul knew that through Christ, or though Christ filled the universe, to most people, he's remote and he's far away. You know, we're familiar with the Lord. But you get out there in that world, and he is remote. And he's far away. Paul said, I want to magnify him everywhere I go. I want to be a magnifier. He wanted to be a telescope to bring Jesus closer to their consciousness so they could see him in all his glory and grace. And he wanted to be a microscope to enlarge their vision of Christ, to make the various facets of his awesome life manifest so they could study him in detail. He said, I want to be a telescope and bring him near what is far away. I want to bring it up close. And I want to be a microscope and show you things about him you would never know unless I manifest him to you. 
You know why this church is here? We want to magnify Jesus Christ. We want to be a telescope and a microscope. We want to bring what is far away in the eyes of others close so they can see it. And we want to make Jesus so plain they can study the various facets and attributes of his beautiful, glorious character. My pastor used to stand up. He was a weeper. And he would stand up there and Brother Howard Knatzer in Beverly Hills Baptist Church. They got filled with the Spirit, got kicked out of the Southern Baptist Convention. God exploded us. And he was like this Moses-type guy. I used to just fall apart when I got around him. I'd walk up to him and forget what I was going to say. He intimidated me. He had this mane of white hair and these piercing blue eyes and six foot two and this deep voice. And he'd walk up and he'd say, hello, Jeff. And I'd just... But he used to stand up there and cry a lot. And he said, my only prayer is that we will make God real to you today. Never forgot it. That's why we're here. Why are you and I here together? We're called to make God real to those folks out there. Magnify him. Powerful truth here. Paul had one supreme goal in life. And it was to show men the Lord Jesus. That was his heartbeat. Now, is that our goal? Does such a desire reside anywhere in our busy souls? Might we ask God to place within us the same desire that Paul had? Can we do it right now? Lord, we just come to you. And we ask you to give us that desire that beat in the breast of Paul. That we would make God real. That we would magnify Jesus to this city, to this state, to this country, and to this world. Lord, put in us what you put in Paul to magnify the Lord. Now, will you just pray, Lord, give that to me. To magnify the Lord in my body. In Jesus' name. Amen. Isn't that good? Give the Lord a hand of praise. That's a good prayer. Yes. Next, we see how Paul viewed this life. Look at how he viewed life. Read it with me. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is a gain. <laughs> wow. You talk about sold out. For me to live is Christ. Uh, that's, he's, he's all my life. He is what I'm about. And if I die, I gained. Everybody lives for something or someone. Everybody in this room, everybody listening to me on radio or any form of media, listen, you're living for something or someone. If we were to ask Mr. Man on the street what he lived for, we might hear something like this. Well, for me to live is pleasure. Or for me to live is wealth. Or how about for me to live is position, power, prestige, fame. That's why I'm living. Not Paul. What did he say? Say it with me again. For to me to live is Christ. And for me to die is a gain. He wasn't living for money or fame or any of the things that make this world go round. All these goals fall far short of Paul's target. Man's chief aim should be to glorify God and fulfill his will, period. 
I assure you, those who live for pleasure or self are in the end filled with regrets. Now, I want you to listen. When I started preaching, I was 18. I'm 58 now. I've been doing it 40 years. I'm going to tell you, as somebody who has aged a bit now, I'm going to tell you what I've seen in life. If you live for pleasure, you will die in regret. You and I were not wired to live for pleasure. We were wired to live for God, to walk with God. One of the most famous hedonists of English history is Lord Byron, the famous poet. And he lived for pleasure. It was what uh, he was known for. Everybody knows Lord Byron lived for pleasure. Great poet, brilliant mind, but he lived for pleasure. And in a poem about growing old, look at what he said. My days are in the yellow leaf. The flowers and the fruits of love are gone. The worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. You know that reminds me of? Backslidden Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. If I look over here, it's vanity. If I look over there, it's vanity. All that is under the sun is vanity. Under the sun meaning life without God. I can't imagine reaching old age and saying, the worm, the canker, and the grief are mine alone. Who said that? A hedonist who lived for pleasure, but not the believer. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that God's going to give me on that day. Look at the difference between the two. To Paul, Christ was the reason and the meaning to life. And dying meant only to be joined to him forever. He knew that dying was not the end, but it was the beginning of eternity. Hebrews 9.27 says, quote, It is appointed for men to die once. But after this, the judgment. You will not come back as your grandma. You will not come back as a grasshopper. You will not come back as a cow. When you die, that's it. You face the judge. Here's the sobering truth. They that live without Christ will die without Christ. Life and death are tied together. This right here this life now, this blink of 70 or 80 years, it's a blink. It's only prep for eternity. Life and death are tied together. Since Paul's life was to magnify Christ, he could face death as gain, not loss. Now next, Paul discusses the blessedness of a fruit-bearing life down here. Look at verses 22 and 23. But if I live on in the flesh... This will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. Look what he says. I'm hard pressed. I'm sitting here in Roman jail. I'm going to face Nero. I could die or I could stick around. I'm hard pressed between the two. Having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is what? Far better. better. It's powerful to consider that Paul was not dealing with whether or not he would live but whether or not he would live in the flesh. He knew if he stuck around, he was living in the flesh, and he knew if he died, he was still alive, and he was with Christ. Nero could kill the body, but he had no power over life itself. Verse 22 is one of total surrender on Paul's part. He was completely at God's disposal. 
Paul's attitude was, if I'm going to go on living down here, it will simply mean that much more work for Jesus is going to get done. And that means more reward in eternity. He said, you let me stick around, I'm going to bear fruit for God. I'm not going to frivol away my, my life or my time. If you let me stick around, I'm going to bear more fruit for the Lord. Because for me to live is Christ. But if I go to heaven, well, then I go to heaven and it's far better. I'm in a win-win. I cannot lose. But when he thought of what waits on the other side, he admitted to be with Christ is far better. Do you know, folks, that what awaits the believer is so glorious, so full of joy unspeakable and so rich, a fulfillment of all the longings of the human heart. There is no comparison between that life and this one. <laughs> we see next that Paul was ever the unselfish lover of men's souls. Look what he said. Now, I'm in a, I'm in a straight between the two, but guess what? Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you never thinking of himself, always being Christ-like, thinking of others. So much work was left to be done, so many millions still lay in the grip of Satan's claws. The churches in Galatia, Asia, Macedonia, Achaia, and Rome had great needs. Paul's friends at Philippi, who were still going for God, needed him. He pulled out his prayer list, which was very long, Name after name, place after place, and page after page reminded him he was still needed on this earth. So he said, for their sakes, I'll stick around. <laughs> Nevertheless, he says, for me to remain is more needful for you. Commentator John Phillips writes, and this was a great statement. Paul put his own desires on one side of the scales and his duty on the other and settled on the side of duty. Let that little statement stick in your crawl, your spiritual crawl, because so much of the time we're selfish, aren't we? And we're, we're taught by our culture. It's all about me. My Godhead is me, myself, and I. But when you get into Christianity, it all flips. We see Jesus giving his life for us, suffering what he did for us, and then a man who walked very closely with him having the same attitude that he's going to talk about next, in the next chapter we're going to look at next week. Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. So we see the mind that had been in Christ Jesus in him. I want to go be with him, but you need me too much. So I'm going to stick here for you. Amen? Now, being confident of this, I know that I shall remain. This is verses 25 and 26. I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy of faith. I'm going to stick around that you progress and grow in faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Now, Paul is here admitting that he didn't believe his time to die had arrived. Perhaps hearkening back to Jesus' statement of Pilate, quote, Jesus said to Pilate, you would have no power over me except it was given you from above. Paul leaned on the same truth. Nero can't take me out till my time has come. Can I tell you tonight, Satan can't take you out. Death can't take you out until your time has come. I really do believe in the indestructibility of the saint until the time 
comes when God says, that's it, I'm done. You're, you, you've finished your course, come on up. God wasn't finished with him. Now Paul finally urges the Philippians to be, say it with me, unyielding, undivided, and unafraid in the battle against the enemies of Christ. Now we're right at the end. Let's look at these real quickly. Remember, unyielding, undivided, and unafraid is his exhortation to the Philippians. First, unyielding in the battle, verse 27, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct means manner of life, your lifestyle. Let it be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live in such a way that the gospel of Christ is honored before the eyes of a skeptical, hostile world. I don't know if it's occurred to you yet or not, but America is becoming a land of persecution. I hope you're catching that. It's not the same country I started preaching in. And the only fair game right now is Christians. So you got to be very careful how you live because those skeptical, godless folks out there are looking for phony, baloney Christians. So he says, let your lifestyle honor the gospel of Christ. Don't compromise. Don't give up ground to the enemy. Be unyielding in your commitment to him. Then he says, undivided in the battle. He says, so that what so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of your affairs that you are standing fast in, say it with me, everybody, one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. One spirit, one mind, one gospel. This seems to intimate that there were some divisions in the Philippian church, and later on we're going to see that Paul's going to name names. Two sisters. Two sisters. It could have as well have been brothers, but his sisters. He's going to name them. They're causing trouble. Imagine that. Brothers or sisters. But there was division in the church. Listen carefully. Here's what he's saying. The things that unite us are far, far more important than any personality clashes that may divide us. I've noticed even wicked people will unite for an evil cause and let their differences go by the wayside to get an evil thing done. Well, if they can do that, think Tower of Babel. If they can do that, then the righteous ought to be able to put differences aside for the sake of a greater cause. That's what he's saying. Satan's strategy is always to divide and conquer. We must therefore be undivided in the battle. So unyielding in the battle undivided in the battle and finally unafraid in the battle and not in any way terrified by your adversaries which is to them a proof of perdition but to you of salvation and that from God what does he mean by that here's what he's telling them your calm collective courage in the face of danger and persecution is a sure token to your enemies of the judgment that awaits them the history of Christian martyrdom is replete with stories of men and women subjected to the most inhumane cruelties known to man. They often faced a torturous death with supernatural bravery and serenity. This, says Paul, only reminded their torturers that they were doomed. Now we're going to close out the chapter. For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, verses 29 and 30. It's been granted to you 
Not only to believe in him, but also to what, everybody? Well, I don't want to confess that. Doesn't matter if you confess it or not. You're still going to suffer if you live for God. Having the same conflict which you saw in me and now here is in me. We are not to think it strange, said Peter. Remember these words, church? When Peter said, concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though it was something strange that was happening to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of what? Say it with me. Christ's sufferings. What are his sufferings? Persecution, rejection, hostility from a godless world for walking in the light. That's what I'm talking about. This has been granted to you, said Paul, as though some great advantage were being sovereignly bestowed by God on them. And look at the words of Jesus. Let's stand together as we read these words. Jesus told us. Matter of fact, I want you to read it with me. Let's read this out loud as we close chapter 1. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. Are you ready for that? If that were to happen to you tomorrow, it's already happening to some of you. They hate you. And you go, what did I ever do to them? Walked in the light. So don't think it a strange thing if you go through a fiery trial because of your confession of Christ. Next week, we're going to look at the cure for strife. It's good stuff. And we're going to look at his, Paul's amazing illustrations of Jesus Christ. And we're going to get some of the most powerful Christology. That means doctrine about Jesus, belief, understanding of who Jesus was next week that exists in the entire Bible. Don't miss it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for standing with us as we stand with you. Thank you for the strength of the Holy Spirit. We draw from that well. Thank you, Lord, that even when we're persecuted for your name, you're there comforting us. And the Spirit of God and of glory is resting upon us. Help us, Lord, in light of these words tonight to wax even stronger in our boldness, in our clarity, in preaching and teaching Jesus Christ. I pray for all of my brethren here tonight as they go into their workplace, those places where the dirty jokes are told and the godless people are and the mockers and the ridiculers, and it's tough out there. And I pray that the word will sustain them in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Sunday, bring somebody either at 9 or 11. We're going to